things were coming to a crescendo. The silence that I was once able to sustain about the horror that was happening behind closed doors, I was having more and more difficult times staying silent. Um, we had seen four different counselors and the counselors were telling, giving me books about men who hate women and women who love them and books about sociopath and, and boundaries. And these counselors would say, you know, what'd you think of the book? And I'd say, great book. Why'd you give it to me? Welcome to A Woman's Blessing Podcast. My name is Lynette Allen, and this show is dedicated to honoring the strength and resilience of women. Over the past 20 years or so, I've held hundreds of sister circles and hosted some truly deeply healing medicine retreats where I've been really humbled to hear the stories of women, of how they've overcome the most difficult life situations. What I've learned is that women are resilient and we are really, really brave. We develop courage and determination on a different level when we find ourselves in critical times and we need to pull ourselves through. Now this show is about meeting the women who have done that. We'll be hearing their stories, their most personal journeys, revealing how they got through, what exactly they did, and where their strength came from when they didn't know they had any left. Now my guest today is a very important guest to me. So I'm gonna tell you her name in a second, but have you ever Googled your own name? Well, I did, and I found another Lynette Allen. And I found her website and she just looked really sweet and really lovely and she was an interior decorator and I, I read on her website she was from Montana. That was a long way from England. So I just was called to send her a message and say, hi, you have the same name as me. I just thought I'd say hello. And from that has blossomed not only the most beautiful friendship, but a connection on a sister soul level like I've never really known before. So I'm introducing you to Lynette Allen. <laughs> Hi, Lynette. How are you? Hello, Lynette. How are you? <laughs> I'm really good. Now, I've interviewed you before a couple of times, but not on this show. And the reason I'm interviewing you on this show is not because of our connection particularly or because we have the same name or because we have the same middle name or because our lives have been so similar it's actually ridiculous but because you have an amazing story to tell and I know you're ready to tell that story after many years. I know that you're writing your story down and you're writing your first book and I'd love to hear your story right now from where you stand having got through it and I'd love my listeners to hear it so do you want to give us a little bit of a background of where you might have been in your life say I don't know five or six years ago do you want to give us a background yes I think in order to build the background of five years ago I have to articulate um what kind of a little girl I was programmed to be, which led me to five years ago. When we look at what created us in the first place, we can then understand how did I get there? So I was born in the mid sixties. And of course it was very um, typical of women to not find their voice. And my mother was a woman who didn't have her voice. So my dad, was an abusive alcoholic. He had come from an abusive home and he married my mom in the early 60s. And my mom had been one of 13 kids, dry land farmers from Kansas, absolute poverty. Uh, my mom was one of the literally tens of thousands of children that were molested by priests. And my mom was told to be silent. And so that laid the groundwork for my dad and my mom getting together. And my dad and my mom end up having five children. And so I had a childhood of extreme abuse, alcoholism, and watching my mother be absolutely silenced. And so in those days, when a woman reached out for help, nobody listened to her because domestic violence was something of a um, private affair. Yeah. So I was conditioned and programmed to just keep 
all that was happening behind closed doors, absolutely silent. And to go further, my mom, which is very typical of victims, isolated herself. So she didn't let friends in. She didn't reach out to family. She just kind of kept it silent. Mm -hmm. So then when I was in middle school, I'd been raised Catholic. So all of the doctrine that comes with Catholicism, I was immersed in. And then when I was in middle school, my father came to know Jesus as his savior. And we switched from Catholic to fundamentalist Christian. So all of that um, extreme doctrine of women, you are born to be the helpmate of the husband and your success is his success. And so that was an absolute immersion for me. I was put in private school. So I I didn't have any contact with the outside world through TV or radio or um, friendships that didn't have that doctrine. It was church. So then I go off to college. I get a peek of the outside world, but I come back and I end up doing what I was conditioned to do. And that was get in an equally unbalanced relationship with a husband. And I had never dated before. My husband I met at 24 years old. He was my first kiss. He was my first everything. And when I met him, he felt like I was putting on my favorite jammies. It wasn't attraction. It was comfort. And so I thought God had given me my perfect husband. And so it entered into um, a 25-year relationship that I repeated patterns that I was programmed to repeat. Um, I had read a book by Dr. Uh, Clarissa Estes, Women Who Run With Wolves. And in the story, she tells a story of how wolves teach their children or their pups how to identify predators. If you are in front of a snake, you don't smile at the snake, you show your teeth. And if mm-hmm. you're in front of a trap, you don't put your foot in the trap. You go way around it. Well, mm-hmm. my culture that I came from, you smile at the predator and you be a nice girl. And I entered into a 25-year relationship where I smiled at the predator. Yeah. And so because of all of that programming, I married an addict who had a different form of manifestation of his addictions. And he had several of them. And I was the, the codependent. I was the enabler. I had learned some years ago that when a person becomes addicted to a substance or a behavior, their emotional development stalls when their addiction starts. And so my husband, his addiction started at 13 and 15. So unbeknownst to me, I was partnering with somebody who had an emotional development of a middle school, high schooler. Okay. I go on and I marry somebody who's emotionally imbalanced and addicted. And I equally was unbalanced and programmed to do the dance. So I did this for years. My husband had lost a family business. And so I became the breadwinner. And when I became the breadwinner years and years ago, I was actually trained to be a teacher um, by profession, but I became an interior designer by default. It found me. I didn't find it. Mm -hmm. And I became a big fish in a little pond and I was badass in my career. So I, you know, I have done a thousand projects. I have traveled, you know, literally all over the nation and beyond with this career And with it, the bigger I got, the smaller my husband had gotten, and it just perpetuated his addictions. And I did what my mother did. You stay silent. You stay loyal. You don't tell anybody. So I um, had the big house on the hill in 2014, living the life that most people look at Facebook and go, oh my God, I want her life. So it was Mm -hmm. the mansion on the hill, the property. Um, three children that were just absolutely God sent, excellent children that brought me joy. I had a career that most women would say pinch me. Um, I was 
physically at the top of my game. You know, I was physically active in my career. So 120 pounds, you know, ripped. I had a fan, extended family that was very involved in my life. So it looked like I had a big supportive tribe. And, and yeah. so I, going into 2014, things were coming to a crescendo. The silence that I was once able to sustain about the horror that was happening behind closed doors, I was having more and more difficult time staying silent. Um, we had seen four different counselors and the counselors were telling, giving me books about men who hate women and women who love them and books about sociopath and, and boundaries. And these counselors would say, you know, what'd you think of the book? And I'd say, great book. Why'd you give it to me? So you didn't really know at that time what you were living with and they were trying to get that to you. Yes. But I was, you know, you don't know what you don't know until you know it. And I was living in the reality that I was, that was completely familiar. And so Mm -hmm. my mom let the outside world know that everything is good. And so I was doing the same. Everything is good. And so there was a sequence of events that aren't important now that was really difficult. I had literally lived in fight or flight and it was building up and building up which led me to my 49th birthday. And my husband, it was 3.30 in the morning and he was upstairs in his office doing what he did. And I literally got on my knees on the floor and said, have your way with me. This isn't working for me. And I believed in a God that was punishing. And so if I left my marriage, then my belief is that big guy in the sky would punish me. And in my belief system, my punishment would come where my children would be harmed. And so I didn't believe in divorce. And so I was laying in bed, got on my knees and said, have your way with me. This isn't working. And I had stayed in my marriage because of fear of punishment, but because more than anything, I wanted to protect my children. I didn't want them to be affected by the horror of what was happening in the marriage. So I was kind of in the doorway which most women that I know that have come out of psychologically abusive or physically abusive relationships, generally they have a really good reason, at least they justify it, and don't know how am I going to get out. And so I kind of let it go. It was my 49th birthday. So I put out my plea and I let it go. So you put out your plea to the universe, right? Yes. Yes. I just thought this God that was running the show I guess yeah. I can ask him for help. Okay. Back then, five years ago, I had a bucket of belief systems that were running my life. But of course, I wasn't aware. I'm looking back 2020 vision right now. Yeah. So about six weeks later, I am diagnosed, which what at the time they the doctors thought was stage four ovarian cancer. And so I had, had into a period of time where I knew that I was full of ovarian tumors and they were seeing spots on my liver, spots on my lungs, um, OBGYN oncologist and a ecologist and radiologist and my doctor were all involved and, and they were basically saying it's stage four as far as we know. I knew enough about um, ovarian cancer because of the history of my family of origin that I probably would not be alive by Christmas. So I went about settling my affairs. I got a client of mine that was a a state attorney to do my last will and testament and did a little bit of research so that I could get my affairs in order and discovered even more things that was more PTSD. And I ended up in late August going into surgery. And the last thought I had was, if I survive... I'm going to divorce my husband. And so I come out of surgery, discover two days later that I didn't have the stage four ovarian cancer that they thought. And so I went about for the next couple of weeks healing. And eventually Mm -hmm. in late October, I asked my husband for a divorce. Okay. How did he take that? Because, you know, I think when women are are stuck in marriages where it's very difficult. Just even bringing up that conversation is like 
how does that happen? And, you know, I've been through a divorce, nothing like your divorce at all. I had a very amicable divorce. But even for me, it was very hard to bring up the idea and bring up that topic. So how did you do that? Did you just come out right? Or did it just, how did that happen? Did you plan it? Or did it just come out in conversation? You had enough? Well, no, I had, um, you know, we had been seeing a marriage counselor and this counselor knew everything about our marriage and the history and the addictions and my codependency and lack of boundaries. And she knew everything. And I had never seen her smile. You know, it was a pretty intense, my husband and I were pretty extreme versions of an addict and an enabler. And she had been trying to get me to see things. So during this two month um, from diagnosis to um, surgery, I had not been going to the counseling sessions. And so when I finally went back and I was starting to let the idea of divorce sink in, but I hadn't said much at all. I've been journaling. And so I went to the um, counselor and and she said, "Um, I haven't seen you in so long. What's been going on? So I caught her up. I had gotten you know, diagnosed and went through the surgery and all that. And she looked at my husband, who they had been having weekly sessions. And she said, uh, you've neglected to tell me about this. Oh, man. And he said, um, I thought this was about me. And then she looked over at me and she looked me deep in the eyes. And she says, Lynette, do you have anything you want to say? And she reaches over and touches my knee. And I... Wow looked over at my ex and said, I want a divorce. And it's the first time it actually hit my lips and it was like vinegar. And it, and he just looked at me and there was like nobody home when he looked at me. He had um, sociopathic tendencies. And he says, I've been waiting for this since the day we married. Whoa. <laughs> he said that. Yeah. It was the first thing he said, which was, Surreal. So what wow. I realize now, Lynette, looking back, is when a woman starts going down this road, you know, I was a con- I was a, an interior designer and a contractor, and I would go in and remodel people's houses, and I would flip them, and I'd run the show. Well, when a truss on a house structure starts buckling under the pressure, buckles under the load, you can see cracks and fractures and breaking yeah. in the truss, right? Yeah. When a contractor comes in and sees the sagging load, what they do is they take two boards and they they sandwich the original truss. And that is called sister joicing, sistering. Mm-hmm. And what I realize now looking back is I was buckling under the load. Mm. I wasn't aware of it and everything was caving in. And when that counselor reached over and put her hand on my knee, yeah, it was the beginning of a long line of sister joicing, sistering. And she came in and went shoulder to shoulder with me and she gave me a support that I didn't know I needed. And it's interesting that it's called sistering because in your situation, you were literally flooded with sisters who held you for the next four years. Yes, but not the not the biological sisters. No. So tell me what happened to your family because um, your your sisters and your brother. Because obviously, we you, I know you had kept your marriage details quiet from them, yeah. and I also know that you probably didn't even want to admit or notice that some of that stuff was happening. Yes. So you come out, you tell your family, "I'm divorcing." And these are the reasons why, and what happens then? Well, the first thing that happens, of course, my family of origin is of the same culture I came from. Silent, loyalty, addiction, you know, all of the soup that we were created in. And my ex-husband's drinking buddies was the family. And they had become very close. And he was probably more like the family than I was, but I didn't know it at the time. So I go to two of my sisters first and tell them I'm divorcing my husband. 
And they just said, oh, who's going to take care of him? Mm. So what happened was I stayed steady on course. I wasn't going to go back. But what I know now is when somebody has gone through trauma, true PTSD trauma, the trauma is not kept in the language centers of the prefrontal cortex of the brain. And so when you start talking about speaking the unspeakable and attempting to tell your story, so like you ask, this is why I'm getting a divorce. For me to tell my story in a cognitively articulate, sequential story, this is what's been happening. This Mm. is my story. It started coming out, but it was discombobulated fragments. Okay. And at the time, I didn't know what was happening. So I was going to, I was trying to speak and it came out so weird and I couldn't quite articulate it. I couldn't do my counselor because she already knew the story. Yeah. And so from October on for the next couple of months, I was going to Al-Anon and I was doing timelines of what had happened and why I got to where I was. And the more memories were coming up that I had buried, the more PTSD I was coming through and the more scrambled my story was. And so I'm trying to go to my family, assuming that they were just going to hold me like we held them through their divorces. So they're just going to hold me no matter what. So I wasn't really that concerned about articulating, but they were watching me like somebody was speaking a foreign language. And so I wasn't able to articulate it. At the same time, I was breadwinner. I have a million dollar house to support. The house is in my name. My ex-husband wasn't able to support himself. He was starting to have a job so he could start to, but I was trying to figure out how do I support my ex and me? Two kids are in college. One had just left the house and keep my career going and go through this very expensive divorce. And I was paying for all legal fees. I was doing everything and the secrets were coming out and the deception was coming out. And I was just, I couldn't handle it. So my family was listening to my ex-husband. I couldn't articulate myself and they deemed me a liar. Mm, yeah. So my counselor at the time, heading into 2015, she started telling me that families like mine set up quote unquote camps. So I would light a campfire and I families that are highly dysfunctional do this. Um, I would set up my camp and invite everybody I could and tell them my side of the story, which of course my story wasn't coming out. And my husband would set up his side of the story and his was coming out, you know, over some beers and it's all cool and fun and fine. And she said, the the ones that are going to be damaged the most will be your children. And that advice caused me in April to just go silent. And what happened on Easter Sunday of 2015 was I went and I didn't let friendships in at all. So I'm pretty much going silent with a counselor and, you know. I knew you at that time. Well, I've known you for a long time now, but Mm -hmm. I had no idea Mm -hmm. at this time what was happening to you. So I only found out. And I'm a, I'm a very close confidant of yours. Yeah. And I was back then as well because my marriage was breaking down. We were talking about that. Mm-hmm. I knew you weren't happy in your marriage, but I didn't know any of the severity of what I know now. I didn't know any of it. So you really weren't talking to anybody about that. No, I was very, very loyal. And yeah. um, it's breaking the trust of the clan to speak of anything that's going on. Yes. And so I didn't tell you, which you were one of my closest confidants, but I didn't let you into my secrets. I no. let you through the facade, but this yeah. is very, very, very normal of women because, you know, we um, are programmed to be something and that's absolutely loyal to our family and especially our husbands. 
keep their secrets, make the world think that they're wonderful people. Yeah. You no, know, I didn't say anything to anybody. And my assistant at the time knew a little bit because, and um, the attorney knew because she had done some research to set up my estate and she had discovered some stuff. So a few people knew my secret and that was unfamiliar to me too. And so I walk into the family function on Easter Sunday, 2015, it was 3.30 in the afternoon. And I walk in and I look across the yard and my husband that I'm going through this horrific divorce and all the memories of the trauma is coming forward. And I am in flat out PTSD. And there's my ex-husband invited by my entire family partying with the brother-in-laws. I found out later that my sisters knew that I was going to be there, knew my husband was going to be there. And that one of my sisters said, don't you dare tell Lynette, she has to get used to this. Oh, wow. Because they had no idea of the, the severity of what had happened within those no. four walls of your home. No, nor were they equipped with the tool yeah. to be by my side. Mm -hmm. And so I, I forced myself, I didn't have boundaries. I didn't know what boundaries were. I didn't think that I was allowed to have boundaries because I was a woman. And so I stayed there for probably maybe an hour. I couldn't swallow. I couldn't hardly breathe. All I could do was cry. And I finally, there was something that welled up in me and said, I gave that man 25 years of my life. I will not give him another moment. I deserve that. And I looked at my family and I loved them so much. And I thought they want him in their life but I don't. So I have to make a choice for me. Even if I lose everything that I ever loved, I have to take care of myself from this moment on. And I went up to my assistant's house and stayed there overnight. And the next day I threw some stuff in my car and I drove to Arizona. And that was the beginning of my, my, um, awakening to me. It was the beginning of me getting to know me and falling in love with myself enough that I would put myself in safe environments. So I know that you did that incredibly well. I mean, you've been on such a massive journey. You put yourself in isolation in a cabin in the woods for a couple of years. Yeah. I know that your closest sisters who were, I mean, I was in England and anyway, but um, your closest sisters in geography and um, emotional terms literally brought food to your door you had no internet you cut yourself off yeah and through your own healing and your own growth synchronicity I don't know if you'd call it law of attraction but stuff came to you everything you needed arrived at the moment you needed it yeah. right up until this last year where you have found yourself back in your own home after years of not having a home uh, with everything you need around you and your kids back with you by your side again. Yeah. So in that big journey, because it is a big journey and anybody in the same position as you were in right now, they probably have some idea of the journey that they might be about to embark on but everyone's is so different. But tell me what you think were the saving graces of that journey, like the turning points where you could say, one day I just said this and then this happened or I decided that and then that happened. How, what would you say happened on your path? So after I had gone to Arizona and did some deep um, journaling and unpacking, and realize the story I told myself is my family is supposed to be there for me. But I realized that what if they're not the ones that are quote unquote supposed to be there for me? And I just started having realizations that um, the story I told myself for almost 50 years might not be truth. And so I just kind of stepped back. And I had come up with a realization that letting go in January of 2015, I had had this 
impactful moment where I was reduced to my knees and I realized in letting go and letting God, the source intelligence that I now allow to command my life, I labeled as God back then. Yeah. I decided the only way I'm going to navigate this is to allow help to come in. And it began with letting that source hold me and help me, but I didn't know how that was going to happen because the God that I believed in was punishing and was keeping score. And I was a sinner and I, you know, so when I came back, um, I was still living in the house, supporting my husband, um, trying to get through this divorce. And he was living up in this apartment that had been my mom's and my mom had passed away. So my, I had put my ex-husband up in the apartment. So I'm trying to live in the toxicity. And so I was at coffee with a client who had also gone through some very difficult stuff with her first husband. And she looked me in the eye and she says, you need to get the F out of there. Mm -hmm. I looked at her and I said, I don't know how, because I'm financially supporter. He doesn't know how to take care of that house. He doesn't know how to turn on the water main. He doesn't know how to run the heating system. And I'm responsible and it's my primary asset. And she grabs my hand, another human touch sistering. And she says, you can't afford not to. And just then I decided I'm leaving. That must have been a real big thing for you to actually like to have that because that was a turning point like another sister coming to you saying you really don't have a choice you must you you listened in that moment yes logic my rational brain said uh you need to get this house on the market and sell the house and and your office is in your house and your showroom is in your house and my, his name wasn't on the house. It was, I built it. I paid for it. It was my asset. How my logical brain is, you can't possibly do this. This is the stupidest financial move you'll ever make and career move. But the other still small voice said, you don't have a choice. So I went with the intuitive voice over the rational voice, not knowing how this is going to play out at all. And just then When I made that decision that, yes, I'm leaving, I don't know the details, I don't have a sister to go to, a biological sister, because they were at this point not in my life. I had walked away from family. Yeah. My phone rings, and it is a client that I had done projects for that we were close, but I hadn't talked to in quite some time, nor had I ever shared with her what was going on behind closed doors. She didn't know I was going through a divorce or anything like that. And- she owned a um, horse ranch with a 1800s cabin that I had remodeled two years before, tricked it out. It was beautiful. And she says, Lynette, she's in her 70s. Lynette, I don't know what's going on in your life right now, but do you need a place to live? Because I just cleaned up the house. So she just phoned you up out of nowhere and says, yeah, I don't know what's going on, but I think I need to offer you my house. Yes this is what I love to hear because when we're in desperate moments and we just don't know what's happening the more I talk to women the more I know a decision is made in our very hearts and we just go no that's it and then magic happens doesn't it absolutely I I literally am filling a book with magic I mean, there's a little bit about the first few 50 years that are absolute yuck sprinkled in with glory, you know, but what I realized is the universe has our back and we, it wants us to get out of our prison. We have to make the decision and then it rises up to meet us in the most mysterious, mystical, magical ways. And so within two hours I was living in this little 800 square foot, teeny little cabin, no internet. I'm surrounded by, you know, a hundred horses. And I had already made the decision to go silent. I wasn't, I decided, you know, those first couple months, you want to tell your story, but it doesn't come out right. So I had gone silent. Well, when I went into this cabin, 
it brought it up to a whole new level because there's no internet. Mm. And so I was going along with my career as best I could with no office, no showroom, no internet. So I'd go to coffee shops and try to send my emails and try to hold my walkthroughs on my job sites and all that kind of stuff. Um, but very little capacity because I could hardly breathe. My heart was breaking. And yeah. so I was just doing the very best I knew. But what was happening as I'm hobbling along, all of a sudden, these people that were my clients that I, unbeknownst to me, were set up by the universe to be those to hold me through my darkest hour were starting to come out of the woodwork in ways that I cannot even articulate the magic that they all one by one began to come back into my life. And what mm -hmm. I realized is if, you know, if you were to take a bunch of Legos right now and you were to build a house, the house that I had built was big and beautiful, European gardens, amphitheater, theater room, you know, you name it, that house was spectacular. And what I was being called to do in this little cabin was dismantle my house, my belief systems, my support system, my thought structures, what I had depended on before, everything had to be dismantled. And so what happened in this new group of friends that I had known for 25 years, who were equipped to handle a woman that was in crisis, they were the bowl and I was dismantling my Lego house piece by piece and their beautiful, strong hands were holding the bowl and they were mm. saying, sweetheart, let it go, let it go. And so I was piece by piece by piece dismantling my Lego house into this bowl. And it was just an absolute, complete and utter surrender. Anything that was not serving me, let it go. Mm -hmm. So that's what was happening during that time in the cabin, those first few months. And so I, you know, was on a horse ranch. So I was healing by riding a horse and yeah. um, just riding hard and getting direction on what does it look like to surrender to a beast that is 10 times the weight and size mm -hmm. of me as I was learning to surrender into a life that is a million times bigger and more powerful than me. And that's why I love horses, because yeah. they're so intuitive. They're such great teachers. Yes. And when I've had interaction with horses, they've shown me my own behavior in my mirror. Mm -hmm. They have been my mirror so much that I just, I love being around them because their behavior replicates my energy that I'm putting out yeah. and I love that you were sent to somewhere with horses where you could unpack all of your stuff mm -hmm. with like you say these beautiful big beasts who were showing you that when you ride hard you just really have to surrender because you're just a very small part of that journey you know absolutely one of the biggest lessons I had learned before I had left the family and before I had left the house and also, I should probably go back. My children also sided with the family. They had all deemed me had gone crazy. And so they didn't talk to me because they had decided I had gone crazy. So nobody was talking to me at all. And I know that your dad actually wanted you sectioned, right? They had had a family meeting and had decided that I had early Alzheimer's. And so my dad had called up and said, the family had a meeting. Your sons were there. All your siblings were there. And we now realize that you have early Alzheimer's and I'm going to help you get an institution. So of course I um, blocked my dad as well because I knew with every day I was falling, 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 that I was surrounded by very healthy people that were saying, just separate yourself from all of that toxicity for now and just attend to yourself for the first time in your life, attend to Lynette. And so I had this dichotomy of hearing from the rumor mill that their, my family and children were out saying I'd gone crazy 
at the same time, I'm in silence, not defending myself. Mm. That's just so hard. Oh, the hardest thing in the world is to go silent and attend to yourself. It's where healing mm. happens. But, you know, our ego, our, the part of us that wants to be secure and have a support system and want to tell our version of the truth, wants to get on top of a mountain and defend ourselves, where sometimes the healing happens in silence. Yeah. And so I had the tattoo I had gotten on my foot at the very beginning of all of this, when I moved into the um, cabin, was the word surrender. And I had decided every step I take, I take in surrender. And if I have to lose my marriage and my house and my family, so be it. So I decided I needed to start finding out who Lynette was and attend to Lynette even if they didn't want me or love me, I needed to want and I needed to love myself because at the end of the day, I come into this life alone. I leave this life alone. And if I couldn't fall in love with myself, what have I got? So I had gotten a tattoo that said surrender on my foot. So I get a call from the owner of this ranch and she says, get over to the arena. I have something for you. And so... I put on my boots and my Wranglers and I head over to the arena because I knew I would be in mud and muck, you know, and I walked yep. in and in the middle of this um, arena that could be in a magazine and beautiful is a woman holding a award-winning racehorse. And this friend of mine who owned this property looks at me and she says, as long as you're here, that's your horse diamond car. Um, and that's the trainer. She's going to teach you how to ride. And so I get on this horse and this trainer says, the first lesson I want you to learn is the lesson of surrender. And she says, I want you to close your eyes, put your arms out. And I want you to feel the rhythm of this horse. It can hear you. And it was one of the major stepping stones of my new path that I am in connection to this beast that's running the show and I need to be in surrender and I need to be in connection because the rhythm is heard. We are in connection. And so it emphasized that surrender, non-resistance is the path and it was the path for me. Yeah. So then I, about probably a month later, I had done a long fast. And of course I am in the midst of the deepest heartache. My children who I had given my life to my family that I was, I was Cinderella. Literally I was Cinderella in my family. I, I had lost my family. I'd lost my kids. I wasn't in my home. Everything was unfamiliar. I was in such pain. So I did this fast and at seven o'clock, on the ninth day of this fast, I get this intuitive voice, time to go to bed. And it's June, it's beautiful outside, and I'm going to go ride that horse. But this intuitive voice says, no, you're not, you're going to bed. And so I decided to go to bed, hydrated, laid down in this dark room, and mm -hmm. I feel like, uh, it felt like spiders all over my body. And I flew out of bed, and I turned on the light. And there was no spiders in the bed. I had just changed the sheets that day. So I went back to bed, fell asleep, woke up at 4.30 the next morning, and I had a swirling, spidery, prickly feeling on my forehead. So I got up, got some water, sat down on this buffalo hide rug in the middle of this cabin, and for the first time in my life, went into a deep meditative state. And I can't explain how I knew how to meditate. All I know is I was led there. And from that day on, it was June 7th of 2015. Meditation has been an absolute non-negotiable practice for me. Because where I am in connection to that force, that quote-unquote beast that is larger than I, that is running the show. Now, hearing you talk is just 
well, it takes my breath away every time. And some some of these details I know and some of them I, I don't know. And so they're fresh to me, which I always love, especially when I'm recording because it's original, you know, um, emotion. But what I'm hearing from your story is I know the people you happen to have worked with for many, many years because of the nature of your job. We're very rich and very wealthy people. And because of that, they were able to, uh, you know, offer you like these amazing racehorses and these amazing cabins to be in. Mm -hmm. But what I want to bring to that is that it actually doesn't matter about how much money your friends have or not. Your life had set you up to be able to deal with this and give you that which you needed at the time. So even those situations where I know women have not had wealthy friends or any money to put any money anywhere, they have still been held by the universe in the same way through their own systems, through their own contacts of contacts from friends of friends, synchronicities happening to have met somebody. So many stories I've heard. So I want just to make that clear is that in your situation, it just happened to be these amazing places you were put, but it's not actually about that. It's about the concept of trusting in your life, trusting that you are held and those things show up. Absolutely. This has really nothing to do with money, but as women, we, we have been conditioned to believe that our security, whatever that looks like to that individual, security Mm -hmm. is money. And I, you know, my security wasn't necessarily money because I could make my own money. My security was my family. Like I've got one friend right now who has taken the dive and she's left her husband where she has not had a job for 30 years. And so her security is in the area of money. My security, my everything came from if I am part of that tribe, I'm safe. Yeah. So everybody's quote unquote security comes in a different form. I'm not animated by money. And it's not, I am absolutely not wealthy. You know that. But I am provided for, and I I never had a fear that I wouldn't be provided for. I had a fear that my family would abandon and betray me. And so as I went down this journey, um, I just, life was proving to me that if I stay in surrender, that it would just magically unfold. Like I needed to know how to have meditation in my life. Mm. And it magically appears. I also, while I was in the cabin, I knew that I had to look at the dynamics that created um, the behaviors in me that would cause me to marry the man I did and to turn myself into Cinderella. And that would cause myself to not allow myself to have boundaries. And that would put myself in such a horrendous situation that my body was in a, a diseased state. Yeah. And so while I was in the cabin, yes, there was somebody who had a cabin that happened to be on a horse or a horse ranch that provided for me to do my work. Yeah. But everybody's work comes in a different form. And so I was in this silence and I was looking at my belief systems and I was looking at um, the stuff that I disallowed in myself. For example, I um, had a belief system that women should not be angry and that if I show my anger, I was going to hurt somebody and that's not ladylike and God's not going to love me. Well, I realized that anger was one of my greatest assets. If somebody is going to do something horrendous to me while I am sleeping, or if somebody's going to deceive me, steal money from me or whatever, anger is one of my greatest assets. But I had disallowed that asset and put it into a basement and locked it away. So while I was in this cabin, I was able to do what is called shadow work, but I was able to look at all aspects of myself and look at all my 
belief systems that caused me to be what I was. And so through that year in the cabin, I was doing that work. And what happened in on September 1st of 2015, the friend who was the attorney and I decided to drive to Missoula. And there was a lot of sequence of events that would take an hour to describe the mystery of this night. But we went to Missoula to listen to a speaker. We were going to spend the night. And at the last minute, we both had clients. So we, we decided to drive back in the middle of the night. It was 1130 at night on a two-lane highway. I was driving a car that was very safe. And um, we were hit head on by a drunk driver. And this particular stretch of remote highway didn't have cell phone service. And I, to this day, I don't quite know how help arrived, but it did. And um, through that, I ended up getting a traumatic brain injury, which created a syndrome that went straight to autotomic nervous system. And my autotomic nervous system, having lived in fight or flight for, you know, through my childhood, and then the extreme version of this horrific marriage, my central nervous system had been damaged because I lived on fight or flight. So I get in this accident. And when you are in an accident like that, generally the, um, the system that is the weakest will be the system that gets affected first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so yeah. my central nervous system ha- got this syndrome and it caused me to um, not be able to work. I tried to work, but my short-term memory and working memory was compromised to the point where I could no longer do my career. Mm. At the time of the accident, I had 40 jobs going. And through some months, came to realize that I couldn't do my job. And so I ended up going to a brain trauma therapy for two years, trying to learn how do I navigate this new life. During that, uh, so I have no marriage, no home, no belief systems because they were falling away. Yeah. Um, no children in my life, no extended family. So I would had been completely annihilated and now no career. And my body, which had this syndrome that had high levels of pain, was no longer the body I thought I had. Mm. And, and I just kept going, I don't know what's going on, but something's going on. And there's really nothing I can do but ride this beast and do the best I knew. So during that, I finally got my divorce and moved back into my, my big house on the hill with this compromised brain, compromised body, no career. When I moved back into the house, I put out a call to a handful of people and said, I don't want to walk into that huge house by myself because I had heard rumors that it was in horrific disrepair. And my realtor had told me he wanted me to take $100,000 off the price because it was in such horrible condition. Oh, and that house was beautiful. I, I stayed there. It was beautiful. Yeah, it was my it was my masterpiece, right? Mm. So I drive up that first day to walk into the house and my driveway is full of trucks and cars. My group that had held me were there, men with ladders. Um, mirrors that were broken were repaired. Locks were changed out. The women cleaned and um, sung love songs in my house to get the energy back in. Um, contractor buddies that had worked for me repaired the heating system and repaired broken plumbing fixtures and just went through the house and helped me as I stood in the middle of the house and all I could do was cry. Oh, Lynette, I didn't know that. Yeah. So then shortly after that, I was driving to, I had just really started driving again and I was driving to um, another town for to see my neurologist and and see the brain trauma center and I was in another head-on another one yeah another one April 1st 2016 and so I got another head injury which further exasperated this ability to navigate life and so here I am navigating that and I'm I can't say I was even worried 
I would, I just kind of knew that somehow things are magically working out. I don't know how or why. So I get this call and somebody who had been in my house several times had married a doctor who I had done a project with and they had decided they wanted to buy my house. And through a sequence of events, they bought some of the stuff that's in the house and somebody else had bought everything else. So I was had sold my house for asking price. All my earthly possessions were going. And I was sitting on my porch swing, kind of talking to whatever source this is that's running this show. No career, no house, no dishes, no, you know, what am I going to do? And just then my phone rings. And it was a client that I had done a, a huge estate for that was literally five minutes from my house. And um, she says, I've been thinking so much about you, what's been going on. And I kind of got her caught up in about five minutes, you know, no career, no house, no marriage, no family. Um, now the house is sold. And I, so I don't know what I'm doing. And she says, well, isn't this interesting? My husband and I have decided to put our house on the market. We're leaving June 1st. Um, why don't you house it for us? So literally for the next four years, Lynette, houses and circumstances magically appeared. And it wasn't necessarily because of my circles of wealthy people, although that was a foundation, but it was just weird events. Like when that house was not available after about a year and a half, I was at a coffee shop when I got a call from that homeowner saying, Lynette, I am so sorry the house sold. You have to be out by November 1st. Just then somebody else called me and I told him, oh, I'm homeless. And he says, well, why don't you just go to Arizona and stay in my Arizona house? I'm never using it. Boom. So it was like magic. At those times when I, I see, I, I knew you, we had a period where we didn't speak because you'd gone into isolation. And actually, I had had a massive shift myself at that point, which we later found out was a similar shift. Mm -hmm. But in those moments, were you completely surrendering and just putting your hands up to the universe? Like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm just trusting that you're going to sort this out for me. Were you doing that or were on some level you panicking? Well, you know, I think that that first year, I would say that I had, um, I, I teetered. I went back and forth from, you know, there's not a damn thing I can do about this anyway. So I'm just going to trust. And then mm. one minute later, sheer panic. What the heck am I going to do? Because yeah. of course I'm paying for this expensive divorce. I'm supporting my husband, um, the power bills were running up to $800 because sometimes he would be heating the house with the oven because he didn't know how to hurt, turn on the heating system, you know, so it was uncontrollable. And then my accident happens, which I can't control what the brain does. So I would peter yeah. back and forth between how am I going to make a house payment? Where am I going to live? What am I yeah. going to do for a career? How am I going to support myself to, I have been shown in mysterious ways that I can trust this beast. And so I, the first year I was teetering back and forth and back and forth. Um, and life was not easy. It was very, very um, painful because what I realize now is the story of the crucifixion or the story of the hero's journey or the butterfly that goes into the cocoon that becomes the um, butterfly you know, all of those stories that were told are all what is called archetypal, but it's all a similar template of taking something that must quote unquote die. So yeah. the ego was the, um, the cocoon or the caterpillar. The way that I did my life was a prison. It was a hellish way. Although my career and my children were heaven, but in so many ways, I was living in hell in my marriage. So the yeah. way that I was navigating life was the caterpillar. It had to completely go into my cocoon and it had to dismantle. And yeah. when that dismantling happens, you are going through death, the betrayal, yeah. the carrying my cross, um, 
and I totally had to dismantle. So there was a part of me that knew I was in a cocoon state. I knew I was dismantling and the way the ego did was going through an ego death, which does feel like death in every way. So during yeah. that time, I was 200% in death and it was pain. And I didn't know what my tomorrow looks like. I'm telling the story from my, yes, you know, my tomorrow. But at the time, I didn't know how it was going to unpack. But there was a still small voice in me that I had come in contact with through my lesson of meditation. And that still small voice kept saying, just keep going. I've got your back. And so I just continued in trust and surrender. And it unfolded through the pain. And eventually I rose the butterfly. And now I am, I've got an ego view of what it looks like when a man or woman are going through their dismantling, their crucifixion, their metamorphosis, that while you're in it, you don't have an ego view and you don't have a textbook that says it's going to unpack this way and this way and this yep. way. You right? are just as in a swamp of goo. And yeah. I mean, I've been there and yeah. you don't know what the hell is happening or how this is going to turn out. Right. Lynette, if you, if somebody's listening to this now that they can resonate with your story or where you were, or if they know someone who is in a similar situation to where you were, Give me two things you would recommend they do or seek or think about because this podcast might be the thing that they happen to listen to that gets them from A to B. Yeah. So what would you say? Two things. I believe that a surrender, non-resistant state is the way you get through it. And so we live most of our life in a reaction state which keeps us where we are. It locks us in. Yeah. And we can get to a place of response instead of reaction. Reaction just shoots to, um, to neuropathway uh, programs of how we were trained. If we can be in a non-resistant state, it puts us in um, a response mode where you can take a breath and take a pause. And look yeah. back into yourself and say, there must be purpose. There must be something running the show and show me that lead me, guide me. So that's my best advice is um, surrender into moving from reaction to response. Yeah. And the second, the universe does have your back. So let the universe show off. Have faith is what I'm hearing yes. in a force bigger than you. So you don't have to take all the action. You don't have to know all the answers. You are allowed to just uh, surrender and relax into the pain, however bad it is, and know that something is going to come along. Absolutely. Mm. And it seems very simplistic in hindsight the hero, the heroine does get the diamond, the elixir of great price, but there is an in-betwixt and in-between stage that you go through in order to come back home to yourself. And I am living proof that I placed myself in an environment of love and I am surrounded by love. My children are back. I've got better relationships with them than ever before. It is heart connection. I live in a house that was given to me in mysterious circumstances that I'm surrounded by gardens. I've traveled the world. I, um, I live in non, non-judgment and 95% of my life is absolute peace. I'm living heaven, but I had to go through hell to get here. And I really, really, really am honored that you shared your story because you haven't ever told this in a public place like this in a public podcast and your book isn't finished yet so we have yet to hear and read that and to touch that so I really can't thank you enough for bringing your story out to more people than you could reach face to face 
I think you're an awesome woman. I love you dearly. Thank you so much. Thank you. I love you too. Thank you for this platform. If you have a story of courage and bravery where you had to dig deep into your resilience and find your true power, I would really love to hear from you. When women stand up and tell their stories, they give hope and inspiration to those who are struggling right now. And women need a ton of strength, sisters. Women they know and women they don't to be held by, to be heard by, and to be inspired by. Dig deeper into your own self-discovery. Check out our hideaway retreats, our secret coaching calls, and our divine rituals to get you back on the road to your highest life purpose at www.awomansblessing.com. And from me, Lynette, and from USA, Lynette, thank you so much for listening all the way to the very end. And I wish you a ton of love and luck from us both. Bye for now.